This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. If you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now... Here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Claudia Tornquist, President and CEO of Kodiak Copper Corporation, trading as KDK on the TSX Venture Exchange, KDKCF in the U.S., and 5DD1 in Frankfurt. Kodiak Copper's most advanced asset is the MPD Copper Gold Porphyry Project in the prolific Hazenel Trough in southern British Columbia, Canada, where in 2020 the company made a high-grade discovery at the Gate Zone, which is part of a zone copper gold enriched envelope of significant size. Kodiak also holds the Mojave Copper Molybdenum Silver Porphyry Project in Arizona, near the world-class Baghdad mine. Both of Kodiak's porphyry projects have been historically drilled and present known mineral discoveries with the potential to hold large-scale deposits. The company's chairman is Chris Taylor, the CEO of sister company, prolific in the gold space, Great Bear Resources. Ms. Tornquist is formerly general manager at Rio Tinto, working with their copper and diamond operations. She also held the position of Executive Vice President of Business Development for the streaming company Sandstorm Gold. She's former director of Kennedy Diamonds, leading the $176 million sale of the company to Mountain Province. Claudia, welcome back to the summer edition of the Ellis Martin Report. Nice to see you today. Very good to see you on this beautiful day. Have you seen my copper cup? Yes. Probably <laughs> for the first time today. I tell you why copper is really good for anything that you put near your mouth. It kills germs. Germs don't survive on copper, right? That's correct. <laughs> That's why you see a lot of, of copper in hospital or here in Vancouver in public transportation. They're now covering all the bus and, and subway surfaces that uh, lots of people touch with copper for exactly that reason. Are they doing that now? Because Everything should be covered, all bar surfaces, restaurants, tables, everything, public transportation. I haven't seen that anywhere else. I guess Vancouver is uh, an innovative city that way. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and and we're seeing uh, Vancouver behind you right now. That's correct. So, Claudia, sorry, I'll put the copper cup down with my cranberry juice in it. Claudia, as a shareholder of Kodiak Copper now for, well, I lost my balance there, for about two years. I'm I'm loving the fact that during the summer, we're seeing some very nice drill results here. Very nice drill results. Let's talk about what's happening in the MPD zone. Yeah. <laughs> or shall I say the MPD Copper Project? That's what it is. Copper Gold <laughs> Porphyry Project in southern British Columbia where we have, at the moment, two drills churning at full speed and are in the midst of a large drill program of up to 25,000 meters this year. Started in April and will be drilling until late in the year. One of the depths I read in the news release that just came out, you're drilling down about uh, 819 meters or so, so you're really getting a good a good taste, a good look of the mineralization there. From what I understand, you found some brand new mineralization zones and, and some breccia, which is also interesting, sort of a mosaic, right? Yep, that's correct. Well, what we set out to do was at the west zone, this new target, just like at the gate zone where we made our first discovery, we drill below shallow historic drilling with the aim to find more and higher grade porphyry mineralization. So that was our thesis that the porphyry mineralization would continue into greater depths. And that's exactly what we found. We had some nice long drill intercepts with long intercepts of copper mineralization, good grades from surface, some nice higher grade intercepts in there. So very pleased with uh, these first results. And you mentioned the breccias. That's a very interesting development. For the first time at MPD, we drilled significant breccia mineralization with chalcopyrite mineralized glass, so blobs of mineralization. And 
that is very interesting because that means that generally means that there is you're sitting on top of a porphyry system and that there is potential for higher grade mineralization at greater depths. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be, but uh, Brescia is not typically the type of mineralization that straight is not the type of object that strays too far from significant mineralization. It's not really an anomaly. It's it's like we may be onto something here, right? It's what you typically see on top of a of a porphyry center. So it's high temperature, high pressure um, mineralization, and um, close to the the porphyry center. And so, yeah, it's really about finding the source of where these stretches come from, and, and typically at, at greater depth than is where you would be looking for higher grade mineralization. I had a great conversation with Chris Taylor, the chairman of Kodiak Copper Corp just a couple of weeks ago, and he's super excited about the project. I mean, the man doesn't have to work anymore. He, he, we did very well with Great Bear Resources, but he's just really excited, stoked, if you will, about continuing on for whatever it takes to, to get Kodiak Copper Corp developed and in no hurry to turn this property over to a major. No hurry. But Chris picked the project originally. He was the one who identified it, who found it, and uh, was a champion that led to the acquisition then by Kodiak. And um, he's certainly very excited about it. And Chris knows BC porphyries, porphyries in North America, very well. He started his geologist career drilling porphyries in North America for several years. So he's really an expert in porphyries. And yeah, very excited about, about MPD and about our results at the West Zone as well. What have we got in store for the rest of the summer? More drill results? More amazing drill results? Well, this year is an exciting year because we are testing several targets on the property, as opposed to the last two years where we have focused primarily on the gate zone where we made our first discovery. So this year will be a very different year. We will be testing four or five targets. The West Zone is one of them. Um, we have started drilling at the Man Zone, different target in the northern part of our property, and two, three more to come in the rest of the year. So lots of results to come later in the summer will probably be the next batch, and then throughout the autumn and into next year. And we're in a very good position. I feel very fortunate to be in a position where we are executing a large drill program that's fully funded. Many of our peers aren't in that position. It's a very difficult market at that time, but that's really where you want to invest. So you're ready with the good results as and when the market turns. I have really great feelings. I'm excited about the fall. I've been talking to a few folks. Yes, the market has been awful. Not many companies have the treasury that, that you do. You have enough to keep going for a while. Are you getting any sense, as I am, that uh, things may actually really turn around with regards to the market? Because I know the share price isn't, you know, it's it's taken a hit like most most companies have taken a hit. So you're you're not unique in that area. But I see it as an opportunity at a time where we could really see a rally in, in the market, with, especially with regard to copper, because actually the economy is looking up here in the U.S., and that means more production and the need and more construction, perhaps, and the need for more copper, especially in the EV market, too. I've got one outside with a lot of copper in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, quite a lot of market commentators are optimistic for the autumn. And yeah, the, today's economic data from the U.S. certainly looks strong. I hope they're right. And it would be nice to see a better market. We are, as you said, in a lucky position in that we have the treasury to go through the down market and keep up our work. But yeah, I sure hope that we'll see better days in the market soon. And yeah, we have lots of results coming and the potential for one or several discoveries and even a poor market generally rewards discoveries. So I'm confident that we'll be able to make this a good year for our shareholders. Great company, great board, great share structure, right? Yep, tightly held. We have 64 million shares outstanding and only a small amount of warrants. Very, very sweet. 
Claudia, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the program today. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Alan. I've been speaking with Claudia Tornquist, President and CEO of Kodiak Copper Corporation, trading as KDK on the TSX Venture Exchange, KDKCF in the U.S., and 5DD1 in Frankfurt. Find the complete story on the company's website, KodiakCopperCorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Craig Chesky, the CFO of The Metals Company, trading on the NASDAQ as TMC. The Metals Company is an explorer of lower impact battery metals from seafloor polymetallic nodules on a dual mission. One, to supply metals for the clean energy transition with the least possible negative environmental and social impact. And two, to accelerate the transition to a circular metal economy. The Metals Company, through its subsidiaries, holds exploration and commercial rights to three polymetallic nodule contract areas in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. Regulated by the International Seabed Authority, sponsored by the governments of Nauru, Kiribati, and the Kingdom of Tonga. Go to the company's website, metals.co. Craig, welcome back to the program. It's great to visit with you today. Great to see you again too, Ellis. There's really positive things right now with the metals company. Let's review that. We've had some recent interest in investing in your company. What has been a very good month of June for a share price. But just as a reminder, TMC is developing the world's largest and second largest undeveloped nickel project in the world. In fact, mining.com just last month released the rankings for 2023 in terms of undeveloped nickel projects. And for the second year in a row, we're number one and number two. But it's a resource in the form of polymetallic nodules. These little small potato-sized rocks that sit unattached on top of the seafloor, of which we've identified, per SEC and Canadian reporting standards, 1.6 billion tons of this estimated resource. So it's very big in order to collect them. There's no digging or blasting or drilling. The processing requires nearly zero solid waste and no tailings. So it's a very large, scalable resource full of nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese. And we're now getting closer to production. I've had a lot of milestones over the last six months, including the successful collection test over 3,000 tons of these nodules. First company to bring nodules to the surface like this since the 1970s, where there's interest in this area from BP and Shell and Lockheed Martin and Mitsubishi. So really, it's an exciting time to be speaking with you and talking to community about TMC because we are full speed ahead looking for production towards the end of 2024, early 2025. There's so many different places I can go with this, but let me start with the uneducated point of view from those folks that are really not familiar with mining and not familiar with undersea mining. Now, I know differently, but the first thing that comes to mind would be, are you sending submarines to the bottom of the floor? Are you disturbing the natural habitat? Isn't this sort of a natural oceanic disaster coming in the future if we're not careful? Well, being careful and taking a precautionary approach is exactly what's going on. But in order to collect these, you don't need any humans down there. It's effectively collection with a robotic vehicle, picking up these loose rocks off the seafloor, and then they're sent up via a riser pipe, just like you would for offshore oil and gas. But the environment here is very different, and there is life down there worth protecting, of course. But there's just a lot less lake to begin with. It's an abyssal zone, which means it's very, very deep and very dark. So you may Google some articles about deep sea mining, and you might see turtles and coral reefs, etc. That's not what this is. This is picking up loose rocks off of the seafloor in what is known to be the most common area of the planet in terms of very, very similar ecosystem over vast, vast thousands of miles. And these nodules are just sitting on top of an area in which there can be no plant life because it's very deep and very dark. And that means there's limited animal life as well. In fact, more than 70% of the life just in this abyssal desert is bacteria. So you can protect it by conserving large blocks of it. And over 43% of this zone of the Pacific has already been set aside for protection. But I would venture that any extractive industry will have some impact. The question is, what is the impact of this relative to the impact of getting the same amount of metal on land, given how critical metals like nickel and copper and cobalt are with clean energy transition? And to bolster your point, there was a recent article in Barron's, and the title of the article basically is, A Company Wants to Mine the Ocean Floor for EV Metals, and It's Good for the Environment. So you're getting some really nice press right now. Yeah, we are, and we're happy to get new reporters on the story, such as Al Root, who wrote that piece. But yeah, I think you've seen the opposition to this new industry, and there's a loud opposition, has been really writing the same article for years, that we 
don't know enough. We don't have enough data. We don't need these metals. And these arguments are getting increasingly tired because now we have observed in-field data of actually collecting nodules and seeing what the impact is. Further, we have credible voices like Benchmark Minerals that has come up with a life cycle analysis comparing, all right, what are all the environmental impacts of getting this amount of metal on land? And what's the impact of getting it from nodules from TMC's Nori Deep project? And what Benchmark found was that across every impact category measured for nickel and every known path of getting nickel on land, whether that's sulfides in Australia or nickel laterites in the Indonesian rainforest, for every impact category measured, nodules presented the lowest impact, including 90% lower CO2 emissions per ton of nickel produced. So you need a lot of metal for the clean transition. And the International Energy Agency says you need four to five times more of these critical base metals if you're going to hit any of our climate goals. So in order to provide these metals needed for the clean transition, you got to get them from somewhere. And relative to the land-based sources, this is a lower impact source, but it's also scalable. There are good other projects on land, and of course, new projects on land will be needed as well. But this is a resource that is so big. You have enough nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese just in TMC's contract areas alone to electrify the entire U.S. vehicle fleet. And it's lower impact relative to the land-based sources. Frankly, it can be scaled up on the time scale in which we need it. Is it more economic to do it that way? It actually is. We would anticipate being the second lowest cost nickel producer in the world behind Norilsk in Russia. And it's not anything special that TMC is doing. It's just because this resource naturally has very high grade. So the difficulty, especially for nickel and copper, we've been mining these for thousands of years and the land-based grades, the head grades are going down. And that means the economics of collection are more challenged, but it also means that the environmental impacts are worse because you're moving more molecules to get a less amount of metal. So when you have exploding demand, new mines coming on land, which are lower grade, that's an exponential increase in tailings and an exponential increase in solid waste. And we think we can be a major antidote to that. But the economic cost is also driven by the fact that this is very high grade. It's on a nickel equivalent basis, a 3.2% resource. That's compared to 1.8% or in a risk in Russia. And on average, 0.2 to 0.3% of the other undeveloped nickel projects in North America. So we're 10 times higher grade or more versus those alternatives. And that's why we anticipate lower operating costs. It also drives our CapEx being lower. We are taking a capital light approach to getting into production. Think about what you have to do to open a mine on late. Even after you do 10 years of exploration, then you have to build a port, power plant, railroads. You have to move local communities. You have to have fresh water. All of these things cost billions in infrastructure that has to get built out. What we have to do to collect these nodules is effectively float a ship out there and have our robotic collector going along the seafloor. And that ship, that ship and that system, which we've already proven work, into the Samsung 10,000 drill ship. So you're taking existing offshore oil and gas assets and repurposing them. You don't have to build new ships from scratch. And when it comes to processing the nodules on land, you can take it to existing smelting facilities. We're going to start out with an existing smelter in Japan per an MOU signed in March of this year. So instead of doing all of this from scratch, like you would have to do with the land-based deposit, which typically is in a desert or a jungle and requires a lot of new infrastructure to be built, we can actually take these nodules off the seafloor with existing assets and take them to places onshore where the assets already exist as well, bringing our capex down to a bare minimum. And you can nearly be carbon neutral from the start. And even though I drive an EV and many people do here in California, it really hasn't been good for the environment, so to speak, because of all that you have to do to process that ore to put into those cars. We would agree. It's really dependent on where that power source is coming from when it gets to the vehicle charger. And for a lot of places, it's still coal fired. When you see some confused policy in Northern Europe, where you have certain types of power like nuclear being shut down while late night coal fired power plants are being lit up again. So it's a very difficult equation to solve. The thing that's going to make EVs even more low carbon is what are the emissions that go into the production of the battery? That's what I was talking about. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that in order to drive down that carbon footprint, you're going to need new sources like these nodules that are able to be scaled up in time. And in fact, we're talking about the European Union calling for battery passports where you're going to see exactly a traceability standard. So you'll know exactly where the metal came from in your battery. And it's going to be reported on the side of a vehicle just like miles per gallon. Well, what's it going to look like when Ford or other companies, Volkswagen, might be getting nickel from Indonesia, cutting down those rainforests? That's going to be a pretty huge environmental footprint on top of coal or other types of fossil fuel power needed to smelt those metals. 
So that's a lot that's going to be coming and a lot that's going to be clear to the consumer in the coming years. And we think nodules are going to be a much better alternative to that. You forwarded me an article written by Joe Carr about, again, the viability of undersea mining. And many companies have failed before you came along. And that was noted in the article specifically. Yeah, look, there have been some that have failed going back to there's Nautilus in the early 2000s, ran into the great financial crisis. And others are going after very different types of resources. Just like on land, there are a wide array of types of projects there is seafloor massive sulfides, which often are copper or gold deposits. And Norway recently announced that they are getting into seafloor massive sulfides, and their prime minister thinks that deep sea mining can be done sustainably. There are seamount crusts, which occur in shallower waters with more biodiverse ecosystems around that. And those are some of those failed ventures in terms of deep sea mining. That is actually hard rock mining, where it's breaking up the ore from the substrate, using explosives underwater. It's more akin to mining on land. What we're doing is a different type of deep sea mining that frankly has never been done commercially before. And this is picking up loose rocks off of the seafloor. And when I mentioned BP, Shell, Lockheed, Sumitomo, all of these companies that were collecting nodules back in the 1970s, this was on a test basis. And then the United Nations stepped in and the UN said, we haven't agreed yet who owns the oceans. You don't have clean title to this asset. So they all picked up and went home and did something else. Now we have that final piece of the regulatory puzzle. So this isn't a matter of past ventures failed because technology wasn't there. The reason this hasn't gone forward is that there was no regulatory environment. And now we have that final piece falling in place in 2023. And that's why the time is now for deep sea nodules. Are you going to be able to dominate the space over time? Is your method of operation proprietary? I would think that this would encourage competition potentially. Yeah, it would. And in fact, there have been new investments from competitors, which we welcome. This isn't something where TMC wants to be on an island, the only one doing it. But I think our leadership in this industry has led to new investment. You've seen Transocean invest in the Belgian contractor who has a clearing Clipperton zone contract for exploration. And they also devoted a Samsung 10,000 drill ship to nodule exploration. So the fact that you have credible voices making investments in this space, I mentioned Norway, there's also Japan, Japan who is looking for rare earths within 2024 near their territorial waters. Importantly, though, China has also been ramping up investment. China has been smelting nodules from the territorial waters in Changsha for a few decades. They have the technology to do it. However, the starting gun for this industry is not going to lead to a gold rush mentality. And the reason for that is that these regulations are already being put in place before production begins. So you have to, when you have an exploration contract, do at least three years of environmental baseline. TMC has done that. Nobody else has. In fact, we just submitted data to the International Seabed Authority from some of our environmental campaigns, and we've submitted more data than all other contractors combined. So we have a head start in terms of the environmental work. We have a head start in terms of resource definition. We have SEC and Canadian compliant resource statements. Nobody else has that. So importantly, not only are we ahead in the work that we've done, but there is a recognition that most of the contractors contract areas within this clearing Clipperton zone have already been allocated. So we have three plots in a very good neighborhood. And as more and more people invest in this space, well, that increases the value of our real estate as well, to use that analogy. So we do have a head start. I don't think that we'll dominate, but I do think that we'll have a, a lead that is going to allow us to continue to ramp up production. But I think China will be there as well. And it'll be important for the West to recognize that if you want access to this resource, there aren't a lot of unallocated plots available. And the way to get access to the partner with companies like TMC. I'm going to finish with this question right here. I've just come back from Australia where I have been observing the rare earth industry, the EV industry, all of that. And what I've learned that vertical integration and lateral integration is really where the market is headed. And there's a lot of M&A activity going on. Could you be potentially acquired down the road in a few years, maybe by one of the majors? I'm just throwing names out there like Mitsubishi or pick any of the end users over there. It's a good question. And when you talk about who wants growth in battery metals, it's not just mining companies. It's offshore oil and gas companies. Our CEO is at the Offshore Technology Conference in Houston in May. And there is a big push towards getting into seafloor exploration from these offshore oil and gas companies who have the assets, they have the experience. And now if they expect that perhaps we're going to get to waning oil exploration in decades ahead, this is a way to repurpose those assets. So there's a lot of interest there. But you're absolutely right. There's a lot of interest from automakers, battery makers, precursor makers, people who really need these metals desperately. So while while there is interest, the good news for TMC and our shareholders is that over 50% 
of our shareholder base is in the hands of insiders of those close to the company, including all seas, uh, which is our partner offshore, our largest shareholder, Andre Karkar through Eris Capital. He's also a board member. He owns about 20%. And in fact, Andre purchased 4 million shares earlier this month. And that is one thing that sparked the rally, that large insider buy. And our chairman and CEO, Jerry Barron, has high single digit percent as well, along with other management insiders and directors. So frankly, we are always going to do what's in the best interest of our shareholders, but we are not a selling anywhere close to our current share price. Well, that's good to hear. What can we see during the next few months? I think what you're going to see over the next few months is more validation in terms of our environmental program. You're going to see more studies from independent research firms such as Benchmark Minerals on why nodules are a better source, but not just a better source. We're going to need a lot of these new sources to meet our clean energy needs. Importantly, I do think you're going to see progress from the regulator. The International Seabed Authority is meeting again in July, and at their last March meeting, all member countries affirm that it is their duty as members of the International Seabed Authority to deliver the exploitation regime, final mining, and all of them are working towards that. And we think we're going to see further progress. And then toward the end of this year, all of the pieces are falling into place for our environmental work, our pre-feasibility work alongside Bechtel, who joined our project, and then also finally making our application to the regulator which would allow us to begin work towards the end of 2024, early 2025. So it's further milestones like that that I think are going to lead to a major re-rating in our share price because right now, even despite the recent rally, we're trading at a few percent of the underlying net present value of the asset, pennies on the dollar. And the average nickel developer on land at this stage of production, reproduction, might trade 30, 40, 50 percent of NPV. So there's still a major underlying discount for what is the world's largest nickel project. And we just got to keep it on track, preserve our cash and do what's in the best interest of shareholders. So the opportunity now, folks, listeners, is potentially right now the best opportunity, I should say. But I'll leave that up to you. It's not our decision to make. Craig, I expect to chat with you in just a few short weeks then. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks as always, Ellis. It was my pleasure. I've been speaking with Craig Shesky, the CFO of The Metals Company, trading on the NASDAQ as TMC. Go to the company's website, metals.co. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp., a public mineral exploration company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the symbol ORRCF. Oroco is focused on the development of a large copper deposit in a Santo Tomas project in coastal northwest Mexico. Santo Tomas hosts a multi-billion pound copper resource defined by historical drilling and currently being confirmed by ongoing exploration drilling by Oroco. Copper mineralization at Santo Tomas is located at surface and therefore potentially amenable to low-cost mining methods. It's very well located with respect to the infrastructure that's essential to a large mining operation. And Mexico is among the world's top mining jurisdictions with laws and trade agreements that protect the rights of mining companies. Since commencing exploration and resource definition at Santo Tomas three years ago, Oroco has made a series of rapid advances, and the year ahead is rich with catalysts, such as a formal resource definition and economic evaluation, each of which carries the possibility of a company valuation re-rating. These milestones will be achieved against the backdrop of a positive forecast for the price of copper, possibly to historical highs, as a result of dramatic shifts in metals' importance to industrial and consumer markets. Adam, welcome back to the program. It's always great to visit with you, my friend. Thank you, Ellis. Appreciate the opportunity to speak through you to the investment community and to talk about the recent advances at Oroco's Santa Tomas Copper Project. I saw that you just published a technical report, 43101. I didn't see the details of it. Would you enlighten me and our audience as to what it states? In early May, Oroco announced the results of a resource estimate calculation at its Santa Tomas Copper Project. That resource, in some total, I guess, is at 8.5 billion pounds of contained copper and equivalent gold, silver, and molybdenum. That resource, 8.5 billion pounds at today's copper price, has a gross metal value in excess of $32 billion. So a very significant resource, one that establishes Santa Tomas as one of the largest new copper resources defined in the last few years. The discovery and the definition of 
new copper resources over the last generation has dropped dramatically. There were very, very few large new copper resources defined over the last five years in a trend that started in the 1990s and continues to today that has seen the discovery of new copper resources drop precipitously. With a resource of that size, and as I recall, you just spoke the number $32 billion in value. Is that not a region maker, a country maker with regard to copper, although Mexico is quite heavily involved in copper and gold? And what do you do with a resource like that? How long do you continue to develop it before you potentially pass it on to a major? Because I don't think you necessarily want to be a producer, do you? Well, the goal of our first phase of drilling at Santa Tomas was to define a resource, copper resource, that supported a minimum of a 20-year mine life. If you divide that 8.5 billion ton resource by 20 years, you can see that this is a deposit capable of producing hundreds of millions of pounds of copper per year. At today's copper prices, this resource is capable of revenue of greater than a billion dollars per year and for a couple of decades. A subsequent phase of drilling at Santa Tomas will follow up on our final holes, which were some of the best in the program, and show that the resource remains open to expansion in a number of directions. So phase one was successful in defining a very, very large resource. By some definitions, you could call this a tier one copper asset. One of those large assets that major mining companies covet, they produce, in some cases, tens of billions of dollars of revenue over their life. They last over multiple copper price cycles and commodity price cycles, and they produce steady revenues and they produce metal at low cost. So I think our first phase of drilling has been an unqualified success. The fact that it ended on some of the best holes of the program and shows that expansion is probable at Santa Tomas is a positive. And we will continue to expand in a second phase of drilling at Santa Tomas. But right now we are focusing on the preliminary economic assessment at Santa Tomas that takes into account capital expenditures to put the deposit into production, operating expenditures, the relevant price of copper, and produces metrics like a net present value, that's the net present value of future cash flows of an operation at Santa Tomas. It will generate an internal rate of return, showing a potential mine builder what uh, Santa Tomas is capable of in terms of return on their investment and other metrics. Let me interrupt you for just a minute, Adam. So at that point, then do you talk to folks like Rio Tinto as a potential equity partner? And why wouldn't you involve them at that point? In my opinion, and I'm not as educated as you are about it, that you have enough right now to appeal to a major to come in and help you make that discovery along with them. So what's keeping you from doing so? If you don't mind the question. I don't mind it at all, Ellis. Thank you. The results of the PEA will define the opportunity at Santa Tomas. It will demonstrate the viability of the project and show the potential investor, whether that's somebody buying stock in the market, Barocco, or whether that's a company, as you mentioned, like one of the major mining companies who are looking for assets like this. It will help for them define the opportunity at Santa Tomas. Our current market cap is approximately 170 million Canadian dollars. The results of the PEA will contain net present value and other metrics, which will allow investors to understand the true value of Santa Tomas. I would expect the net present value will be multiples of the current market cap. So not only will that incentivize investors to look at the company, it will potentially incentivize major mining companies to come and speak to us. And I can say that the world's big mining companies all have very well-functioning business development departments. It is part of their job. The playing field understands potential new sources of production, potential acquisitions. And they've all done a good job of speaking to us and keeping up to date with progress at Santa Tomas. That's not to say we are in talks with anybody in terms of selling the company, but the world's big mining companies are keeping up to date with what is going on at Santa Tomas. And following the publication of the preliminary economic assessment, I would expect they would have more data points from which to assess this project as a potential investment. Well, I can't disagree with that logic at all. It certainly makes sense to have that PEA done before you even take it any further with either courting the majors or them courting you, which often happens because they do pay attention once those PEAs are published. So when will that get done? (laughs) And I'm asking as a shareholder would, as a longtime shareholder would, you know, when will that be done? Well, if you're looking at this for the appreciation of the shares, we can't predict that. With the resource estimate published in May, the technical team turned their focus to the completion of a preliminary economic assessment. It's going well. We have previously stated that we expect it to be complete before the end of the third quarter, so before the end of August or September, and I think that guidance is accurate. I've known you about 17 years, Adam, and you've only been with this one company, Oroco. 
Cocoa Resource Corporation. And that's pretty unusual in the space, especially in Vancouver. People change companies, they change hats, they change positions, they change policy, they change everything. You're a one-company man, Adam. Oroco was started in 2006 to develop the Cerro Prieto gold and silver mine in Sonora State, Mexico. We went public in 2008. By 2013, we had defined a resource. We had permitted that project, acquired surface rights, water rights. Basically, had Cerro Prieto at a turnkey stage. Along came a buyer, and we were able to sell that project. That was a successful exit. As we were in the process of selling Cerro Prieto to Gold Group, we were working on a land assembly process for the Santa Tomas project. The rightful owner to Santa Tomas had approached us, asked for our help in assembling the concession ownership and concession titles. And we knew at the time that this was a very, very large copper deposit. It was multiples the size of our Cerro Prieto project. It was one of the world's biggest copper resources. It had been drilled and defined as of the mid-1990s. Low copper prices and a legal title dispute at Santa Tomas had prevented any further work. So we understood this project to be a diamond in the rough. This was a project that had been drilled extensively. A very large copper resource had been defined at Santa Tomas. And we knew that the type of work that was necessary to get it back into the kind of state where you could finance and advance it was in our wheelhouse. So we did that in January of 2020. We concluded that process. And I think our timing was really terrific because as 2020 and 2021 started to roll out, it became apparent that the rate of discovery of new copper assets had declined precipitously, that copper was going to be a key material in the energy transition. And the momentum for copper has just increased since then. It is now recognized as the one essential metal in the energy transition. The energy transition, which involves renewable energy, electrification, is very copper intensive. There are forecasts. The deficits between supply and demand by the end of this decade will be at historical levels, several times higher than the deficits from 2000 until 2013 that drove copper prices five or six times higher. So we started work at Santa Tomas just as the world started to become alive to the potential, the future potential for copper prices and started to understand the shortage of new copper asset to be put in production to meet that demand. The world started to recognize the declining grade of existing copper mines and the forecast for future copper consumption and future copper production started to point to significantly higher prices in the sector. In an interview a couple of weeks ago, Citibank analyst and copper expert Max Layton stated that copper is the go-to investment of the energy transition and that in the coming two years, investors look set to pile into the copper market on an unprecedented scale. As the usage of copper in electric vehicles and renewable energy increases, the forecast supply of copper is not expected to keep up. Therefore, Mr. Layton, as well as a number of other analysts in the sector, believe that copper prices are on an inevitable path to significantly higher levels, and the value of assets like Santa Tomas will inevitably follow. And you're trading at quite a discount compared to some of the highs we first talked about about a year ago, and that's indicative of the market and the smartest investors that get the most return on their investment absolutely dive in in a market like this. Let's see how many of them there really are. Yeah, Santa Tomas and Oroco caught investors' favor a couple of years ago. The recognition of the value of the historical work at Santa Tomas increased greatly after our first couple of rounds of exploration. We demonstrated that the resource that was defined as of 1994 at Santa Tomas looked to be accurate and investors piled in. But over the last couple of years, with recession fears, with the slowdown in China, with COVID in particular, a couple of years ago, copper market has cooled. And it's interesting because even as the copper market has cooled, the inevitability of higher copper prices and higher copper demand has become more widely understood and more widely expected. So there's a great deal of pressure, if you will, building up behind the dam in terms of an awareness of increased copper demand and copper consumption, but a shortage of future copper supply. So the longer this goes on, the longer the circumstance goes on where investors are avoiding commodities, avoiding copper because of short-term problems in the market or short-term influences that have driven the price down, the more that future demand when it starts to hit is going to bite and the greater potential for price appreciation of copper metal itself, as well as those equities related to copper, like copper producers and copper developers like Oroco. 
We're just beginning summer right now. What does Oroco have planned for this season? Our technical team are currently focused on the completion of the preliminary economic assessment. That is, as I stated earlier, expected by the end of this quarter. Some hints as to what to expect from it could be contained in the mineral resource estimate that was published in May. One of the important figures in the mineral resource estimate is the cutoff grade. And the cutoff grade represents the estimated break-even costs of mining at Santa Tomas. That was stated as between 0.13 and 0.15% cost. And when compared to the average grade at Santo Tomas, that would suggest margins in excess of 60%. So I think investors can look at that document, they can look at the size of the resource, and they can understand the scope that that PA will likely lay out. It will be a very large operation, likely a very high capex, but likely very significant revenues of a type I would hope interest the market and show Santo Tomas to be one of the biggest new projects being developed by a junior miner company today. Beyond that, we're looking at a busy end of the year. We would hope to get a second phase of drilling underway at Santa Tomas to continue to define, to upgrade the resource and to expand the resource and prepare for future economic assessments at the project. And Ellis, you know me, I will continue to enthusiastically discuss and educate the future of copper as we are looking at a century, perhaps, of growth in copper use and growth in copper's importance. I agree with the statement made last year by Goldman Sachs that copper is the new oil, meaning economic activity the last century was driven by oil supply and demand. The next century will be driven by copper supply and demand as we decarbonize, as we shift to renewable energies, and as we electrify everything. Adam, you never disappoint. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp. Oroco trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the ticker symbol ORRCF. Go to the company's website, orocoresourcecorp.com. For Adam Smith and Oroco Resource Corp., I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Joe Opsonick, president and chairman of P2Gold, trading as PGLD on the TSX Venture Exchange in the U.S. as PGLDF on the OTCQB. P2Gold is a Vancouver-based precious metals and copper exploration company founded by a management team with a proven track record of discovery and successfully developing exploration projects into mines. P2Gold is focused on advancing its BAM Gold Copper Project in BC's Golden Triangle with an initial mineral resource estimate for the Monarch Gold Zone, the newest gold discovery in the Golden Triangle, where near-surface gold mineralization is open in multiple directions and with significant exploration potential for a gold-copper porphyry system at depth. P2Gold is also completing a preliminary economic assessment on its gold-copper GAVS project on the Walker Lane trend in Nevada. P2Gold is led by a team of industry veterans who have worked together in exploration discoveries, mine development, and company building since the 1980s, including companies such as Silver Standard Resources and Predium Resources. Joe, welcome to the program. You and I have been friends for a while, but this is the first time officially you've been on the radio program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Great to have you as a sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. If you don't mind, for our audience, which your story is new to, give us an overview of P2Gold, please. Well, P2 Gold, relatively new company. We launched it back in May of 2020. We've got the management team out of Predian Resources, where we have a fair bit of experience. We took the Bruce Jack mine from discovery to commercial production in under eight years. So that's the team we have here. We've collected a couple of really good projects. We're big believers in our projects. We own over 20% of the company. That's a high-level look, P2 Gold. I think essentially you could have retired from your success with Predium. What made you take on more work? As a team, we've worked together for quite a while and we enjoyed what we do. So we're always looking for challenges till we're too young to retire. And so we want to have some fun. So we're exploring up in the Golden Triangle, which we know well. And we're also working down in Nevada. We have a good time together and we're looking in advance and we're looking to have some success. Both of these projects in BC and in Nevada, the BAM project in BC and the GABS project in Nevada are copper gold projects. They're often found together, copper and gold. And what you've done here is you've hedged against both markets, really, because we have two different markets. We have a gold market and a copper market, and they don't necessarily work together, although sometimes they do. Any particular favorites right now? As, as of right now, I think they're both well-positioned. I think on the gold front, fragmentation of the world, we've got 
a brick block, China, Russia, Brazil, and that group sort of separating away. I just think you're going to see more and more demand for coal now that don't quite have quite the same strength of the U.S. dollar going forward. So I think looking ahead, gold's going to be strong. On the copper side, well, look, at you can't electrify the world without more copper. And so we believe copper will continue to be strong and, and get stronger as we look ahead. I think we're coming into an era where both gold and copper are going to be working together and going strong. This is an expensive space, the junior mining space, especially when the market is a bit suppressed right now or depressed, if you will, which I think is the best opportunity. After all, the old adage is when there's blood on the streets, it's time to really hunker down and get involved in the market. This is perhaps the best time to invest if you haven't done so already, if you have some cash on the side. But I digress. My question is, how does a junior mining company survive in this market when you have exploration and development projects that you have to put forth? You must do that. It's tough. The market, as you say, is really tough and people are not coming forward. Fortunately, in Canada, we have this flow through financing that's allows us to, it's like an LLC in the States where we can issue shares to shareholders and then pass along our costs associated with an exploration program so they can deduct them. We have the benefit of that in Canada. That allows us to raise some cash and then otherwise management. We've invested seven, eight million of our own dollars into P2 and, you know, we're expecting big things. So solid invest. But as you say, when times are tough, unfortunately, I guess in general, people don't want to take the risk on, but that's when the best return is there. Why wait when everybody's jumping in at what potentially could be a five-banger? Let's review what you're doing in the Golden Triangle right now with the BAM project. What's happening there? Well, we're up at BAM. We're drilling. BAM's located pretty much in the heart of the Golden Triangle. We're just east of the big Galore Creek project that Newmont Gold and Tech Corporation have a feasibility study. We're southwest of the Red Crest Mine where Newcrest is expanding and growing and growing that gold copper project. So we're right in the heart of where we want to be amongst these big gold copper porphyry systems. And for, for people that aren't familiar with the terminology, most of the big gold mines today are copper mines. They're gold copper porphyry deposits. And so we're in the heart of a number of big gold copper porphyry deposits. And that's what we're looking for at BAM. And we feel with this drill program, we're on the cusp of a major discovery. And that BAM is going to be the next significant gold copper discovery in the gold triangle. So that's why we're excited. And that's why we're pushing hard to get that done this summer. On your website, p2gold.com, you immediately talk about jurisdiction and how you've got two of the best jurisdictions in the world, BC and in Nevada. Nevada is a whole different ballgame in that it's a, kind of a desert state. It's mining friendly. It's been mining friendly forever, and it's here in the U.S. What are you doing in Nevada? As you say, jurisdiction. Going forward, we believe jurisdiction is more and more and more important for mining. Because if you do make a discovery, you want to be able to hang on. We, uh, when we launched the company, we said we stick with jurisdiction. We're in British Columbia. We're in Nevada. That's our chief focus. Down in Nevada, we have a project called GAVS. We actually bought GAVS back in 2021. And the reason we bought it twofold, first, infrastructure, great infrastructure. We've got drive right to the project. We have power on the project, far different from the Golden Triangle. And secondly, it had a nice gold copper resource. Again, gold copper. That's our focus for the future. And so we looked at that gold copper resource. We thought, hey, there's potential. It was about 1.8 million ounces gold equivalent, gold and copper. We think there's potential 4 to 5 million ounces gold equivalent right up on surface. We completed a drill program in the fall of 21, roughly 4,500 meters. And with that, we increased the mineral resource by over 50%. So we're now sitting about 2.7 million ounces gold equivalent, about 1.5 million ounces gold. 1.2 million ounces copper in gold equivalent. We're in a PDA. That's a preliminary economic assessment. So we've retained Capus Cassidy out of Reno, highly regarded in Nevada for designing mines. And they're doing the work for us on putting together a mine plan and seeing what the economics are down at GAPS. We expect to have the results of that news uh, that preliminary economic assessment announced in the coming weeks, any time now. So it's getting close. And with that, we're going to be in a position to build a mine in Nevada. So as I mentioned, BAM, we're looking at a great big gold copper discovery, something huge. It's going to take a long time to build out GABs. That's something with this PEA, we think we can move things forward and push it into production. You know, maybe three years, late 26, early 27, you could see production of GABs. And so different 
different aspects. And we think that company balance will have production down here, giving us cash flow. We'll have exploration for this large gold copper porphyry deposit for the future up at BAM, the Golden Front. Let me see if I understand this correctly. You're not only an exploration and development company. Your intention is to be a producer and you're not looking to be acquired anytime soon, are you? That's the thing. Look, if somebody wanted to acquire us for the right price, go ahead. Our view is you just have to advance the company. So we're advancing both our BAM and our GAPS projects. And we're going to keep pushing them on GAPS. It's not a big mine, but it's going to provide nice cash flow. Maybe that sort of 80,000 ounce gold equivalent size producer, you know, nice size mine for a company our size. And we'll just move it along. And so, yeah, no plans to sell out or bail out or anything else. We just want to get this moving and move it forward, get the cash flow coming out of GAPS and advance our BAM project. When I sat down with you in New York at a conference and really got to know the company with you and your VP of Corporate Development, Michelle Romero, I learned about the team and I was interested in becoming a shareholder. And now I am a shareholder specifically because of the team. If the team is not worth a darn, don't buy the company. I bought the company based on the team alone. Let's talk about your management team. First off, great to have you as a shareholder. Now, as a management team, Ken McNaughton, who's our chief exploration officer and I, we started working together back in 99 for a company called Silver Stem Resources. That's a company we were key members of. We took that from roughly a 10 million market cap up to a couple billion market cap in 2010. At Silver Standard, we were pretty much around the world, Australia, Russia, Africa. We were in a lot of jurisdictions. Michelle joined us in 2004, as you mentioned. She's worked with us since then. And then we brought our CFO as actually our corporate controller out of Freddie Resources, joined us back in 2016. So as a team, we've worked together for a long time. While at Silver Standard, through acquisition and exploration, I ran the acquisition side. Ken McNaughton ran the exploration side. We grew our silver resources from essentially none to over 2 billion ounces of silver in the ground during that period. And we also took the Perkitas mine from an exploration asset to commercial production. And that changed silver standard from a explorer which had been for 40, 50 years, into an actual mining company. The interesting thing is in 2009, we were exploring up in the Golden Triangle at Bruce Chat, and that's where Ken was running a drill program up there, and that's where we discovered the Valley of the Kings. The Valley of the Kings turned into the Bruce Chat mine. We sold that project in 2010 out of Silver Standard. I had the job of selling it. So what we did is we set up a company. We sold that asset into the other company. We then moved over to that company, Predator Resources, and we took it from that discovery stage through to commercial production in 2017. It was actually acquired by Newcrest Mining about a couple of years ago now for over 2.8 billion U.S. dollars. So quite a win at Bruce Jaff. We're looking into the same here at P2. And I wish you all the best. And I say that not just as a journalist, but as a shareholder. I buy management, period. That's what I do when I invest in the market. And if the management's not there once again, the risk is exponentially too much to bear. Joe, tell us about the share structure of the company. Fully diluted. We're about 106 million shares outstanding plus some options and wards. Management owns 21.7% of the shares of the company at this point in time. Most of that's owned by uh, Kennedy. And we purchase our shares either in the market or in private placements. I'd say our average cost is in that 40 to 50 cent range at this point in time. We're trading substantially below that. From a shareholder perspective, we're well incentivized to make P2 a success for us and for all our shareholders. And in the U.S., you're trading at about 17 cents or so. In Canada, that's more like 21 or 22 cents with potentially a great deal of upside. Indeed, when this market does turn around, and it will happen at some point. I can't predict when, you can't predict when, but that's why we're here talking today and that's why we're doing all the work that we're doing. Joe, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining me in the program. I look forward to chatting with you after the PEA is completed. Great. I look forward to it as well. Cheers. I've been speaking with Joe Ovsenek, CEO and President of P2 Gold, trading as PGLD on the TSX Venture Exchange and PGLDF on the OTCQB. For more information on P2 Gold, go to the company's website, p2gold.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report.